Zone 3 Podcast. Robert here, Reggie, we're the MRI yes. guys, and we're to- joined today by Dr. Marcotte, the yes, cardiac welcome. guy. Welcome. He's a cardiologist. Hi, Dr. Marcotte. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure, um, guys. If you would. Pleasure to be here, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming. If you would, just tell us about yourself, your background, maybe. Your... Pleasure. My name is Francois Marcotte. I'm a cardiologist. I was born in Montreal, Canada, and I've been here in Arizona for about three years. I'm trained as a cardiologist with a specific interest in congenital heart defects, people born with heart defects. I do general cardiology as well. And I also have an interest in cardiac imaging, cardiovascular imaging, non-invasive and non, non-radioactive or not using x-rays, basically, namely echocardiography and cardiac MRI. And I've been a cardiologist for about 30 years. I've been doing echo for about the same time and MRI for about 20 years, always for the heart. That's, I so, only do heart and grade vessels. Wow. So you've been doing, you've been a cardiologist longer than I believe uh, David has been alive. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> <Dave's our producer>. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Very impressive. Well, awesome. Thanks for com- joining us. Thanks for coming today. We appreciate it. I guess we're going to be talking about congenital issues for sure today yeah. since that's your specialty. You mentioned different modalities you have experience with. Do you have a, I mean, obviously we have a bias. We're MRI guys, but do you have a bias too? Do you have a preference? Which modality? I think in terms of safety, I think both techniques, echo and MRR, are extremely safe. What echo brings to the table is flexibility. So it's a small Uh, machine. You can bring it anywhere in the emergency room. Echo means sonography. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So ultrasonography is capable of answering basic questions. If there's fluid around the heart, the cardiac function, and also quite precisely assess the valvular function because it's got such a great uh, temporal resolution, the ability to look at things in real time. Mm -hmm. It's really quite an advantage uh, to use as a first line tool. We use other things also like x-rays and EKGs and, and, and blood tests. MRI comes in as a more second line imaging, usually to answer questions that echo can't. The advantage of uh, MRI, as you know, it's been around for decades and discovered initially in the 40s and popularized by Block and Purcell as a as a modality to analyze tissue. Uh-huh. And yeah. we make pretty pictures out of it, but never forget that MRI characterizes tissue. Right. We, can see, we can see the difference between fat, muscle, fluid, tumor. And that's really what MRI brings to the table. The ability to categorize tissue uh, ultra high definition right there, right? Ultra high definition. Versus standard. <laughs> spatial resolution right. uh, than echo. Echo has about a two millimeter spatial resolution. MRI between one and two, which is still not as good as CT, which is sub-millimeter uh, oh, spatial wow. resolution. So CT brings in that, that, that ability to see really, really small things. But CT, no one's perfect. Nothing's perfect. CT doesn't have the temporal resolution. So in terms of doing cines, it's a little blockier than certainly the MRI ladder, right? and most certainly echo. Echo has a temporal resolution of 30 to 60 frames per second. MRI, let's say 25 to 30 frames per second. And CT, we'll say roughly about 15 frames per second. It still does pretty good cine work, but it doesn't have that temporal Damn. resolution. Yeah. So both MRI and CT are second line agents. The advantage CT has over MRI is that it's a faster test to do. Oh, right. Patients tolerated better, I find, also. There's right. less claustrophobia and there's less... Because uh, it's faster. Because right. it's faster. So the patient doesn't have to sca- stay in the scanner longer. But again, MR is able to, to look at function in a 3D fashion, is able to characterize tissue to see, and with the use of Gatelier enhancement, the official uh, approved use is angiography, but right. the unofficial or off-label use 
uses the enhancement of the of the heart muscle and of cardiac tissues to judge on the perfusion or lack of perfusion of these tissues and helps in categorizing these. Right. The added value is a phenomenon called late gadolinium. Well, there's early gadolinium enhancement, which, we, which we've used for decades for tumors, mm-hmm. but there's late gadolinium enhancement. So it's like delayed imaging? Delayed images, yeah. And those have been around sort of since the mid-1990s, came into prime time really in Y2K around and have been used widely off-label for, for 20 years, basically. Right. I think this is about to change. I think the, there are some some studies that have come up. Solidify the use. Yeah, solidify the use. <laughs> nice. Looking at perfusion and ischemia mm-hmm. uh, in comparison to nuclear uh, myocardial perfusion Im- imaging with nuclear methods mm-hmm. and found quite advantageous. Uh, using contrast. You know, using huh? contrast. And I think this should be revised. I'm not going to tell the FDA what to do, but, <laughs> but I, right. I, my my personal bias, I think, is that we've been using using it for so long I think we've grown a little tired of saying, well, this is an off-label use. Right, um, having to explain that. Because it's really come into the, what we have, uh, our toolbox basically to practice medicine. Now, congenital-wise, do you use MR for a lot of your congenital cases? Yes, congenital heart defects are not as common as you know, regular problems like you know, high blood pressure affects one in four Americans. Oh, right. Just in comparison, congenital heart defects affect one to 2% of all people. Oh. So about 1 to 2% of all people are born with a heart defect. For them it's a big deal, uh, right. you know. Some of them are blue when they when they're born and if not operated or treated with medications would would surely die at birth. Right. So now with the miracles in intervention and cardiac surgery, pediatric cardiac surgery and pediatric cardiology, these individuals that 50 years ago with dying, you know, shortly after birth are now surviving into adulthood. And I'm an adult cardiologist and I see them when they reach adult age. So I'm a teammate of pediatric cardiologists who do all the the hard work between (laughs) zero and 18 years. Right. And then at 18 years in one day, we we, we come along and and we try to, we try to to match the, the excellent work that pediatric cardiologists have done, uh, you know, and, and, and getting these individuals with a great head start on life. Wow. Yeah, this is really you, home You're succeeding me. so far. Yeah. Well, we're trying. Trying, trying not to drop the football. <laughs> well, I know this, this really touched home for me because uh, I, I know I was born with a heart murmur. I was lucky enough that I had one where I could kind of grow out of it which I believe has happened. I'm not, not 100% sure. I don't feel any heart problems, but I, I haven't really had gotten checked out for that. Now, when it comes to like, you know, pathologies that are congenital, like heart murmurs, how many different type of congenital like pathologies are there? Like it's a- There are potentially hundreds of different congenital anomalies. The, the heart actually is the commonest organ affected by congenital defects. Oh. It, it accounts for about a third of all defects found at birth. That is interesting, wow. A heart murmur has to be differentiated from a heart defect. A heart murmur is simply a sound that blood makes as it travels through the heart. Uh, and a heart murmur we can hear with a stethoscope. Or is this something like usually with high velocity? So high velocity, turbulent flow. You know? Right. So it may be there are murmurs. Some murmurs are entirely normal. They're called innocent murmurs. And there are abnormal murmurs or pathological. And that's where we come in and we auscultate and you know we obviously will get ultrasound and MR to sometimes categorize these. So a murmur simply means an abnormal sound that the blood makes as it travels through the heart. I was going to say, because that was, that was actually answers my question, because like, I'm curious, I would imagine everybody has 
you know, a sound potentially, that and we from see the a lot of heart murmurs in, we all in have turbulent flows. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in completely normal people. Right. I'll give you an example. When women become pregnant, we often hear heart murmur because the blood travels faster inside yeah. the chest, inside the heart. heart yeah. When you're pregnant, your your cardiac output doubles, you know, and it's uh, oh. so the mere friction of blood within the heart can sometimes cause these heart murmurs. People who have, uh, you know, other conditions like anemia or infection can sometimes have like what we call a hyperdynamic state. And that sometimes can cause murmurs as well. So we have to dif differentiate these from, from abnormal murders. For sure. Examples of defects. Well, the commonest congenital problem is an aortic valve that's called bicuspid. So mm -hmm. normally the aortic valve is a valve that exits from the heart into the aorta, and it's made of three leaflets of about equal dimension. Well, some people are born with partial fusion of two of these uh, leaflets, or it's called a bicuspid valve. Wow. And that happens in about close to 1% of people. How detrimental is it? Well, like everything, there's there's a scale, there's <laughs> varying degrees. <laughs> yeah. Some kids are born with very tight valves, and they have a narrowed valve, and they will require intervention as infants because right. they have what we call aortic stenosis, which is blockage of the aortic valve. Um, is this something you're able to diagnose in a fetal ultrasound? You can. You probably can. I mean, the fetal ultrasound affords pretty good resolution. And you start, I mean, I, I think it, you, the, 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 uh, the fetus becomes imageable, if I, if I can invent a new word. Um, <laughs> I would say probably around 10 to 12 weeks, still really, really small of, right. of gestation. It grows in size and typically most ultrasounds are done somewhere between 12 and, and 16 weeks. I mean, there's, there's very variations in practice. Not everybody does it the same way, but I'm saying a lot of people will do it around that time, right. which affords sufficient growth of the fetus to be visible. Right. Obviously, you remember that there's amniotic fluid, which serves as like an ideal ultrasound medium for imaging. Mm -hmm. So we can use that to better see the fetus. Um, we can do the same views that we get uh, in, 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 in echocardiography and an MRI for that MRI, reason. Nice. Uh, we can also do MRI even on pregnant oh, women. Peter O. Um, I was going to ask you about that, like the risk versus reward. One thing that we can offer for safety with the patient is uh, protection from the 130 decibel sounds that they're right. But we're not able to add protection to the patient or to the, you know, the fetus. That's right. We, so you have to weigh the risk versus reward. Yeah, we use it. Again, it's a second line exam. I've used right. it for congenital heart defects where I'm not getting the full answers to my question by echo, either because the acoustic windows aren't great or the problem is complex. For example, imaging the right ventricle right. in someone with, with a really abnormal heart. The specific case I have in mind is someone with transposition of the great vessels, which where you have inversion of the ventricles or, oh. or in other words, Ooh, the right inversion. ventricle goes into the aorta. Yeah. It's complex, but yeah. so I've used MRI. Typically we, we will not image pregnant women before 12 weeks of gestation and we will obviously not use gadolinium. Right. But, that was going to be, yeah. But, so. But you can get a lot of information with a dry and, and obviously for the reasons you mentioned, we don't, we don't do like. These exams are very, very focused. Right. We look at function. So th th these exams can usually be done in very efficient states in between 15 and 30 minutes. So we're not, we're trying to, to really cut down on the amount of time that the fetus is, uh, is exposed kind to. Of well, one thing I'm curious about, I've never considered before is, you know, with the fetus development, my understanding, forgive me if I'm wrong, I probably am, but my understanding is that typically the lungs develop later in gestation. So if a patient is, if a, you know, a baby is premature, typically they have respiratory issues. But what I'm getting at, is there a window of weeks 
in which the patients, the baby's more susceptible to congenital heart development? The heart in itself forms between, well, it's, it starts at conception, but yeah. all the mechanics of the formation of the heart, if I may say that, what we call the embryogenesis is between six and 12 weeks. That's okay. when the closure of the holes inside the, of most of the holes inside the heart occur, where the valves form, where the two circulations are separated, the circulation to the lungs and the circulation to the, to the systemic circulation. Now, the thing with fetal physiology is that obviously, as you, as you said, Robert, that fetuses don't breathe. They're, right. they're in amniotic fluid. There's nothing to breathe there. So the lungs, although they develop, there's not much flow going there because the, the function isn't ready yet. If I right. Say. Yeah. So you get about, let's say 10% of your blood flow that goes to the lung. So that's why most of the blood flow is directed towards the systemic circulation to nourish the brain and the developing oh. organs and the lungs, obviously, because they have to develop too. Right. The lungs will continue to develop for up to two years following birth. You know, the wow. architecture and the, yeah. the, the arteries and, and all. Your question probably refers to when, when are fetuses ready to start breathing and live? Well, I guess more of my question and, was, is there a certain point where throughout, you know, your 40 week gestation where you yes. can, you feel like you've, okay, good. We've made it past that point where we know yes. their baby's healthy. We know, we know if that they don't have it at this point, then we know we're good. Right. I mean, yeah, usually your, your lungs are, I mean, major problems will be, will be present usually. At 12 to 14 weeks, you should be able to identify. That's uh, why we, we yeah. do the, the, uh, the fetal echo or, or MRI at that time. The maturity of the lungs to be used to, to breathe normal air takes more time. There's something in the lungs that's formed that's called surfactant, which helps uh, basically uh, maintain the alveoli, which are like airbags within the, <laughs> in the lungs, if I may say that. <laughs> and that compound, which takes a little bit of time to form, is available like in, you know when when a baby reaches beyond 32 33 34 weeks that's when it's I know a little bit about this cuz my son has asthma and my understanding is that's kind of where patients with asthma have the issues is in their alveoli and I, that's one of the late developing asthma it's more for my understanding and I'm not a respirologist but asthma maybe in part that but I think it's mainly what what we call the airways so we call this reactive airway disease before the the airbags or the alveoli lie obviously the bronchi and the, and the bronchioles. And these are small passages, airways, through which air travels in order to get to the, to the lungs. And I think a lot of the, the, the people that have asthma have problems more with the, the bronchi and the bronchioles. Sometimes this is made worse by viral infections that many kids oh, get. Right. We all have to pay our dues in terms of acquiring immunity. So <laughs> right. we get exposed to virus, we build our, our immunity, our immune system. And sometimes in the process, we have some, some kids have, have more issues with reactive airway disease. So, right. and that's typically treated with what we call bronchodilators, which are medications that help these loosen the muscles of these, uh, of these airways because there's little muscles in them as well. I mean, this is awesome. We got a cardiologist we're sitting with Reggie. Yeah, <laughs> I, I gotta be careful. I'm, I'm, I'm skating on thin ice. Well, I mean, we're trying to. It's, it's, I think it's interesting too, because is it more common if you have congenital, like say a lung issue, will you also have like congenital heart issues? Is it like one of those things? It's tied together, Reggie. Right. So uh, it's a good point you make. We sometimes find that a lot of these patients will have mixed uh, issues. Obviously the heart and the lungs are a team. They work together. They're a unit that helps 
well, their, their major function is oxygenation, right. the, the blood and basically circulation. Getting so it out. as this tight unit, this team of the heart and the lungs, if the heart's not good, then often the way it, it manifests itself is through the lungs. Right. If you have heart failure, one of the manifestations is that you may develop water on your lungs because uh, the flow isn't efficient. So right. in adults, what we call heart failure or pulmonary edema rather mm -hmm. is, is, is one of the ways that, that, that people will manifest with the- uh, with And to the, tie that to MR, failure. is that the reason why we do that large field of view through the lungs? I think it's a, a cardiac big advantage. MR? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a big advantage. Obviously, there are limitations because of the um, susceptibility between, let's say, proton-poor alveoli and the blood vessels. And so we sometimes, we may not be as efficient as CT to look at, at the lung, but we can right. see we can see big things. Uh, you know, if someone has a nodule, a tumor, these are some of the things that we can, that we can see with with MR. Even though the exam is not geared, well, the ones I look at right. are, are geared for the heart, <laughs> not right. geared for the lungs. These are called incidental findings. It's not rare to to, to see. We we uh, find incidental findings that in about a fifth of okay, all oh. the cardiac studies we do. That's why. Oh wow. Um, we work in close relationship with, with radiology and all our studies are reviewed by a radiologist to make sure that we don't miss any of those extra cardiac findings. So we're a team there too. We're just like, <laughs> just like the heart just and the like lungs. The heart and lungs. <laughs> we work as a team and uh, we make sure that none of these extra cardiac findings are missed. And these are significant and roughly, even though we find them in, in one out of five, it's probably maybe one or 2% that are clinically meaningful. Oh, meaningful. Okay. So a lot of them are like, yeah, it's, Stuff that doesn't really carry any, any gravity for the patients that are of inconsequential, but it's it's good to know. You know, you want to. You want to you sometimes a, it's not good to know. <laughs> <laughs> and you got like a congenital case to show us, right? Well, I have there? a case, so yeah. maybe we can go on and. Dave's and, and pull I think that this up. case exemplifies the flexibility that we have in MR. It also makes it important to work as a team. So. I tend to be there in, in the control room when, when a study goes on because even though, you know, cases get protocoled, you know, we, right. we, we look at the clinical information, we try to do the best. This was an example of a, of a case where I was working with some of my best technicians. Nice. And basically the case had been protocoled to look for you know, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. This was a 25-year-old man referred from an outside provider. So we had nothing on this patient. We hadn't done an echo. We hadn't done oh. chest x-ray. We had nothing. We were doing this for an outside provider. And basically this, uh, this young man had leventricular hypertrophy, which is a, an abnormal thickness, increased th thickness of the heart muscle in the left ventricle. This is the ventricle that pumps the blood, the red blood, towards the aorta and, and the systemic circulation. So he had this both on EKG, which made the, the, the provider get an echo, and they confirmed that. And sure enough, when we looked, these are city images in steady state of free procession. On the left panel, you have a short axis view at the papillary muscle level that shows both the left ventricle posteriorly and the right ventricle anteriorly. And you see that the function is actually very good, but the thickness of the, of the muscle is quite increased on, yeah. on the left side. So this is the left ventricle with papillary muscles here, the interventricular septum. This is the right ventricle. These are the, in, the inferior walls or the diaphragmatic walls. You can see a little bit of liver here. This is the lateral wall. This is the anterior wall. Same thing for the RV, anterior wall, lateral wall. On the right-hand panel, this is a 90-degree view to this view called the three-chamber view or long axis. And there we see... so. 
the view on the left is a cut right through here at the papillary muscle level. So oh. this view opens up the left ventricular cavity. It still shows the right ventricle, but only the front part of it. And now we see the aortic valve. Cinema, in steady state of preprocession, because of its properties, is good to show blood flow within the heart. It doesn't show it perhaps as vividly as the classic gradient echo. Simply because of the way the, the, the sequence is engineered, we don't see blood motion as well. But we can suspect that there is probably something wrong with the aortic valve. There's a little bit of leakage. You can see spin dephasing yeah. here in diastole in the aortic valve. The aortic root looks a little bit generous perhaps. Normally, the aortic root and the left atrium, which is right here, are about of equal size. So you see that the aortic root is bigger than the left atrium and that there is left ventricular hypertrophy with a preserved function. So yeah, indeed, this person could have a host of diseases that find with left ventricular hypertrophy. Now, the thing with left ventricular hypertrophy, we run into, if we simply look at thickness, we run into the same problem as echo. And there's a host of different things that can give leventricular hypertrophy. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or HCM, is a genetic condition that affects about one in 500 people where you, you, know, you get transmitted from your parents, yeah. from your parents, and it causes an abnormal thickening of the heart muscle. And the heart muscle is not as efficient in contracting. There's a little bit of what we call fiber disarray. So the myocardial fibrils, instead of being parallel, are kind of a little haphazardly oriented. Ah. So the heart doesn't have as much strength and perhaps this causes a compensatory increase in the thickness. We're not sure exactly how all of that happens, but we know that these hearts are quite thick and the thicker you are, the more problems you run into basically, because you've got to feed all that muscle, obviously. And if your circulation, if your coronary circulation isn't good because often these hearts don't relax properly. Well, they don't get the greatest blood flow you know, sometimes, so it can lead to, to problems. You can get other conditions, another condition called amyloid, which can also be transmitted genetically, causes an increased uh, muscle thickness, but it's because of there's an accumulation of abnormal proteins within the, the heart muscle. And this also impairs the chondroitin because the, the myocardium has to compete for space with all this protein that's doing just sitting there that's amorphous. Right. People who have uncontrolled high blood pressure with end-stage renal disease obviously oh, yeah. have uh, thick heart muscle. So the commonest cause of leventricular hypertrophy is actually hypertension. So you can get that with severe hypertension. And then there's another cause here. This is another genetic abnormality called Anderson-Fabry, which is another type of uh, genetic uh, storage disease that can give thickened so, heart muscle. So it sounds like it could be treated pharmaceutically or a lot of um, these? Sometimes, yes. Some, some of these can be, uh, well, they uh, undoing what, nature is as dealt you with at birth and these are right. in a way they're kind of congenital but they're we call them genetic abnormalities these abnormalities obviously put these patients at risk of cardiac events heart failure arrhythmia sudden death right. so they have to be looked at and uh, you know they have to be evaluated and and what we call risk stratified and mri plays a pretty big role in doing that the advantage mri has over echo is that not only can you look at wall thickness but for the reasons I've said earlier, we can also give a gadolinium enhancement. This is an example of a patient, a different patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And you can see here that this patient has what we call systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. The function is just as good. as It resembles a lot what our patients has. Mm -hmm. But when we give gadolinium to these patients, because there's sometimes scars within the myocardium, for the reasons I've exposed, discrepancy between the blood flow that you offer the myocardium and its needs, this sometimes leads to scars. 
And these types of scars are seen with the off-label use of gadolinium. That's the late um, gad enhancement. That's right. And you have here an example of this enhancement in the septum that doesn't really correspond to, to a coronary territory. It's kind of in the middle and typically occurs in the most in the thickest parts and where the hypertrophy is the most severe. But it's kind of haphazardly there within, within the myocardium. You can see it wherever the myocardium is thickest. I'll move on to the next slide to show you other examples of, this is an example of amyloid. Again, if you compare it to our patient, if you look at without gadolinium, different patient. But you know, you can see that the heart muscle is thickened. The functions, eh, a little bit reduced perhaps. You see that the atria are quite enlarged. And you were asking earlier about the lungs, the, the field of view. This is an example of, of a right pleural effusion that's seen readily with uh, steady state of free precession. See how fluid appears quite uh, vividly. You can also see a small posterior pericardial effusion here. I've worked with you before, and I know when I see pleural effusion, that's usually when you ask to do that free breathing cine. Sometimes we do that because within the diagnosis, within the differential diagnosis of pleural effusion, you have to take in, well, the commonest cause is heart failure related to, well, a right pleural effusion in particular is going to be heart failure related to, you know, either a low pump function, someone who's had a heart attack or has a cardiomyopathy or an excessively thick and non-relaxing stiff ventricle. So when I see, for example, more of a left pleural effusion, that tends to correlate more with pericardial disease. That's interesting. I didn't know that yeah. was So when I see a left, pericard uh, left pleural effusion, I mean, obviously, the commonest cause there would be a, a left lung problem, like a tumor or something like that. Right. But you can see that sometimes with pericardial diseases. And there, I'll look for constriction or I'll look for inter ventricular interdependence with the use of steady state free precession, free breathing. Now, what, what happens when we give these patients with amyloid gadolinium, because the extracellular space is expanded and there's, there's lots of room between the different structures, look how gadolinium basically floods the myocardium and totally enhances diffusely. This is a most, this is a really extreme form of cardiac amyloid. That can be good. No, and these patients really have a not, not so good a prognosis. Oh. So these are some of the things we were thinking of for this young man. So we administered gadolinium and we saw, we saw that really there wasn't all that much to write home about, so few. So in the LGE uh, sequences, we don't see much in the way of hyperenhancement, maybe a little something at the septum. So we haven't quite ruled out HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But another thing that I look at, obviously, the, the hypertrophy is fairly symmetrical. In genetic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it tends to be a little more asymmetric. Not oh, yeah. always, but sometimes. Right. And the other thing is we can look at the septal curvature. You can see here that it's concave, means it's going outward. In genetic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it tends to be the opposite. It seems to be sort of convex and bulge inwards. So these are some of the things, not an absolute criteria, but right. these are all things that we look we look at. The thing that struck me and the reason I went on with the, so this patient was scheduled to have a perfusion study of his myocardium because we were looking for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But I changed the, the mode of administration of gadolinium in this patient for this particular reason, because as I came in and I came in sort of a little late, you know, with my coffee, the text had already started and they were, you know, getting ready to do the thing. I said, well, let me just look at the, you know, the basic picture, Right. put my coffee down and then just start <laughs> going through. We could see that in the proximal descending aorta, the, the aorta looked absolutely tiny, Oh yeah. which made me think of a potential congenital anomaly. So instead of doing just a perfusion study, I said, time out, time out, we're going to do an angiogram, so yeah, or as we say, uh, uh, sometimes a twist. So that's what we did in this patient, and really, this showed us that this patient had and severe hypertrophy on the basis of hypertension. Cane. 
that was not mentioned by the by the clinician. Right. And he had a really, really tight narrowing of the proximal descending aorta here. And you have a volume rendered spinning. I don't I don't want to make you dizzy here, but uh, <laughs> hold uh, it on tight. But for you MR techs out there, this image he's referring to, the twist, that we call that the candy cane. Yes. So this is a case of coarctation of the aorta. One of those congenital anomalies that can occur in in people. You know, is that like a ca- like a time. plaque buildup or? It's a congenital narrowing of the proximal descending aorta. You're born that way, basically. Really? Yeah. And that particular problem accounts for about, let's say, 7% of all congenital defects. I told oh, you that really? over half is the bicuspid valve that's, that's, that has two leaflets. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it seems like the, the flow would be very turbulent, right? Very turbulent. And you can see that there's compensatory collaterals. So the body will not sit there idle. I mean, if there's a severe blockage here, which you can also see here posteriorly, I'm trying to move the arrow not too fast, right here, this is where the uh, the narrowing is. You can see that the body has built its own bypasses. So it's a form oh, of, to of make up for natural that. bypass that the heart is trying to build to help blood travel from above to below. And you can see that sometimes we see that there, there can be dilatation of the of the ascending aorta. We can certainly see here that the left subclavian looks a little bit prominent. There's the left carotid and then the brachiocephalic trunk. So in this person, instead of going for medication, what we recommended was a percutaneous coarctoplasty and stenting. So we opened oh. up that. So I referred the, from the MR lab. I called my, my colleague uh, in the congenital clinic who was doing uh, cath and, and intervention. I said, I got a guy with severe coarctation, unknown basically. He's not too symptomatic. He did have severe hypertension, so <laughs> he had a procedure the following week, and we we opened up his coarctation, and you know he felt uh, a lot better. So I was going to say like something maybe in a threat to me. I, I did uh, hybrid kind of IR cases, but and we did is in the lower extremities. But is that something you could do up there? Uh, you could do that. I mean, it's it's a to tight narrowing. So typically, what well, what was done in this particular case? Or stented, or I don't know, grafted. Exactly what maybe. we did with stenting. So MR plays a role certainly here in delineating the severity of the of the coarctation of the narrowing. Oh, right. You can also see if you're going to be deploying a stent in this area. Well, you want to know where those cerebral vessels and and where the subclavians are going to be. Typically, they'll use covered stents, but they'll use a stent certainly to minimize the risk of recoil. Right. And the thing with this is that it's been there like this, this has been there for 25 years. He's 25 years old. So there is a small risk. If you do plain balloon coarctoplasty, there is a small risk that someone may develop a false aneurysm at the site of, of dilatation. So right. that stent really is a bit of a safeguard that helps us minimize this risk, obviously. Now, this is a, an approach we can use in an adult. Obviously, if you are dealing with a tiny little baby who's going to grow and you put a stent it's not as right. it's not the same thing. So <laughs> in infancy, a lot of these cases presently are going to get operated by 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 capable cardiovascular surgeons specialized in congenital heart defects. But this can be a, a nice way to take care of a problem, especially if the coarctation is tight, but relatively distant from the, the cerebral vessel. So you don't end oh. up jailing the, the subclavian artery right. uh, with your stent, basically. So and so what kind um, of symptoms was like could he like how can you go 25 years like that? Well, he did have hypertension. He did not see doctors very often. And, right. And that doctor, I hope, took the blood pressure. <laughs> but this was certainly not mentioned to us. Uh, right. So we took the blood pressure, obviously, as we do for every MRI case. And obviously, this BP was 170 over over 90 in both arms. And we had trouble feeling the pulses in his lower extremities because of the blood flow not going. But this is not part of a normal 
cardiac MRIs. So right. we, we examined him because we, we, we saw findings. But this is just an example of why it's important for the doc to be in the room when you're to doing be this around. because yeah. we wouldn't have missed it, but we lo- we would have lost a nice opportunity to administer gadolinium the right way right. for this patient. So right. I think here you, you've got to be flexible and you've got to be able to make changes on the fly sometimes to address the specific problem. And, and be ready for surprises because cardiac MRI has has surprises sometimes. Right. And the and I've scanned many, many patients with Dr. Dr. Marcotte, right? shoulder to shoulder with me watching so and that's extremely helpful and he's always so valuable. Ha- happy to share his information yeah. or his knowledge and so well, there's some doctors that you know well, all not, doctors are awesome but some are more awesome than others you're awesome thank you <laughs> thank you <laughs> we touched up on ct versus mri and the imaging and and the differences and right. you know the pros and the cons but one thing i did want to kind of mention as far as the pros and cons is maybe just the volume of contrast in general because with you know, with MRI, we're giving 15, you know, well, it depends on the patient's weight, obviously, but we're giving, you know, anywhere from maybe five up to 20 cc's, but... It's typically a weight adjusted. The correct dose varies somewhere between 0.1 and 0.2 millimoles per kilogram. There for, are, for MR? For MR, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with the CT doses because I, I don't practice CTs. I, I leave right. that to my radiology colleagues. In MR, some centers, especially in Europe, use 0.1 which gives you a pretty good, so for an angiogram, usually 0.1 is gonna be enough. For late enhancement studies, you can probably see significant things. There have been studies that have looked at progressive doses, and obviously the reason 0.2 is used is because it offers the best contrast to noise ratio. Right. We find, I personally use 0.15 based on some studies, published studies that found that at 0.15, you probably have most of the advantages. It's like in between, right? yeah. A little bit more enhancement than you do at point one, right. but I th- I still think that you can get the diag- most of the diagnosis with point one. Now, um, if you're using point one, do you have to give more of the contrast? Would you say? Or typically for an angiogram, in order not to oversaturate and get the, right. you know, the, the the artifacts that go with that, sometimes we'll if we plan on doing a late enhancement studies, we'll typically use as we say half dose, half uh, dose point right. one for the angiogram, and then sometimes we'll add a little more, but Different practitioners have different okay. ways. I think if you're, I mean, like 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 is done in in a lot of MRI, especially in Europe, a lot of practitioners use will simply use point one. I just find mm. sometimes you may be missing out a little bit on on some of the enhancement there. Right. So I want to maximize maximize that. There's also also timing. I was going to talk about give, that. You have to image sooner. You know, I've had conversations about the timing, and you said that there's been studies that you said you know don't worry about if you've. If it says a 10 minute delay, if you get it at 12 minutes, you can kind of touch on that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, um, late enhancement lasts. I mean, there are studies that have shown that you can see enhancement for like 30 minutes or or even 40 minutes in, you know, in, in, in large. Now this is an abnormal myocardium. Normal myocardium will, that will all be washed away. But there are studies that have looked at late enhancement, for example, in, in, in myocardial infarction and the earlier you image, if you have a really deeply dead myocardium, uh-huh. we call that microvascular obstruction. When it's when when the infarct has really totally demolished the myocardial architecture, and there's there's no flow going into that. There's, right. It's called a no reflow zone, and those will appear dark in early imaging between five and ten minutes. But if you're patient, we don't have the time. To, we don't want to keep patients in in the magnet for forty minutes. You know, who, right. who wants to? But some studies have shown that if you re-image at thirty and forty minutes, these areas that are totally 
non-reflow will eventually start enhancing with time. So that's why I'm saying if you're in the middle of, you know, finishing your cine and you're saying, you know, if you're using 0.1 or half dose, it might be more important to image early. If you're using 0.2, it may not be that critical. Again, I think you, this can be argued many ways and, and, and physicists right. probably have a, a better handle or better grip on the timing of LGE. But I'm less nervous with that. It's usually if you're a 10 versus 12 right. versus 8. Personally, I don't, I don't think it makes a big difference. I think the more time you give, well, obviously normal areas will, will wash out. The blood pool will wash out and this leaves your enhanced area to be the, the lonely stickler there exactly. that, that's left. So I haven't found it, but obviously for a patient's comfort, we don't want these tests to last forever. Well, right. we want, if you've ever had an MRI and you're in this coffin, <laughs> you're, you want to get out, you know, your cigar case, cigar prefer, case, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Uh, well, and for the MR techs, one thing what you would do is calibrate the optimal TA, TI time is you would run a TI scout um, right. for the late gad enhancement. Losing the look locker uh, technology, yeah. yes. Yeah. I'm curious though, unless, unless a patient is presented to you with an ordinary diagnosis of amyloid, because normally you would run the gate late GAD enhancements at eight minutes, but with amyloid you would run it at four. So what if amyloid was an incidental finding? Yeah, well, the thing with, with early enhancement, it's useful to do early enhancement because in some areas it can help you diagnose areas that are poorly perfused. It also tells you areas that have excessive gadolinium accumulation. Mm -hmm. So you can use that as a comparison, an early versus a classic late, and classic late is typically at 10 to 15 minutes following injection. That's when we, you know, the, the classic timing for that. We've pushed the envelope because we want to we want to improve throughput and minimize patient discomfort by shortening the exam to the shortest that's that's scientifically Possible, right? adequate to get to get the answer because we don't want to leave people in there for 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 too long. So it does bring some and and that microvascular obstruction or or no reflow zone can be diagnosed in this way where you see enhancement within normal myocardium and lack thereof in areas that that are infarcted with an early late gadolinium enhancement happening as well. Right. And then as you let more time elapse, well, the normal myocardium gets rid of the of, of the gadolinium. That area that's that's been centrally necrotic can sometimes start taking up a little bit with time. And then you see the classic LGE in the infarcted zone that we're- Well, we're, you, you we're mentioned it before, you're able to distinguish between the different tissues better with MR, so yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the, it translates to diagnosis. Yeah, and and it, I think it's a useful test to do in patients who've had uh, MI. It can bring a lot of information to the table in those where MIs are caused by where something a stress test couldn't do. If someone's had an MI, sometimes we're a little sheepish in doing a stress test. Yeah. So, in someone who hasn't had an MI to diagnose coronary disease, this is a great test. In someone who's had an MI, sometimes we'll, we'll just try to assess the extent of damages first. Mm -hmm. And where I find you can get added value from MR is in those areas where, in those cases rather, where your MI is not explained by, by a corresponding coronary lesion. Mm -hmm. So let's say you've got like, you know, you think there's an anterior MI and then you, you do a coronary angiogram and you find normal coronaries or minimal plaques and you say, oh my goodness. How did that happen? Why, <laughs> right. why, why is there an MI, what looks like an MI on echo and with enzymes and the patients are sure as hell had pain. So you have all the, all the criteria of the, of the universal definition of, of myocardial infarction, which is having pain that lasts long, having EKG abnormalities and having functional abnormalities on, on non-invasive testing. And then you see, what? There's no lesion. So 
what is wrong. So did this patient have like, you know, minimal coronary disease or does he have something else? Could he have, for example, a stress cardiomyopathy to also called the uh, AKA Takotsubo, or could he have had like just a virus, a myocarditis? So sometimes, or he may have, he may have had an MI and simply the artery got reperfused. It was a like a, a tiny little blockage that bled, formed a big clot over it that, that blocked the circulation for an amount of time. And then when the patient was given blood thinners uh, like aspirin and heparin, this blockage washed away and then you have nothing left behind. That can happen too. So, uh. so with the late gadolinium enhancement, we can sort of see this kind of, this fingerprint, right. this LGE fingerprint for various diseases. Nice. I have a slide. I don't know if we, we have time uh, later. This this actually was a paper that was written by one of my colleagues, Chris Cummings, on the various, the fingerprint of, of lead gadolinium enhancement, what we see when we give that. And if we see something that's subendocardial or transmural, that typically is something that's coronary or vascular. If we see stuff that's in the middle, uh, or what we call mesocardial, as shown in the upper left. So... So like sorry. our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy case we saw. Is that meant to represent like a short axis? It is, yes. That's a short axis view. Sorry. Okay. Yes. Yeah, okay. Good point. So you can see different diseases may have different fingerprints, and that's how we use this kind of distribution. It's like help. CSI almost. Huh? That's right. We're playing CSI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, thanks for bringing your PowerPoint, your yeah, this visual is... aids. Thanks for bringing yourself. I appreciate it. There are certain questions I wanted to ask since you're here. It's not every day we're across the table from yeah, some wrap -up somebody sure. who's got more intelligence than us <laughs> combined. <laughs> it's lopsided for sure. <laughs> Like I said, there was certain questions that I had. For example, for my shout out to one of my good friends, uh, Jeff. He's got an irregular heartbeat back in high school. They weren't going to let him play basketball for that reason. So when we hear that somebody has an irregular heartbeat, what, what does that mean? How detrimental is it? Can he play basketball? He, he did for the record, but. Irregular heartbeat is a layman's term for arrhythmia. And arrhythmia encompasses a number of different things. An arrhythmia is, a, is an abnormal regulation of the heartbeat. A heartbeat typically starts from the base of the heart near the right atrium at a place called a sinus node. So that's where the impulse arises and then proceeds in the atria, hits a mid-heart relay called the AV node, which is a kind of a buffer zone, and then proceeds into the uh, bundles that innervate, if I can right. say, both ventricles. There's a left bundle for the left ventricle and a right bundle for the right ventricle. And these are these are cells that are that have both contractile, like myocardial, and nervous or neuro capabilities. So they can propagate conduction and electricity. So sometimes mistakes occur. There are arrhythmias where the heart is too slow. We call those bradyarrhythmias. Right. For example, if someone has electrical block, that would be a bradyarrhythmia, and we treat that with pacemakers. If your heart goes too fast, then we call those tachyarrhythmia. Tachy is in tachycardia for, right. for fast. I guess it's from the Latin or the Greek. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's tachy. tachy. Is, it, yeah. is it also called palpitations? Palpitations is okay. a symptom that okay. where, the, where, the, where the person feels an abnormality in his heartbeat, is conscious of his heartbeat, either going fast or sometimes even skipping a beat. Oh, yeah. So skip beats are common. And they can happen in normal and abnormal individuals. What dictates really the management of people with irregular heartbeats or abnormal heartbeats is one important question. Do they have a normal heart or not? Some people can have oh. abnormal heartbeat, but if they have an underlying heart that's, that's fine, that's good. Right. We always ask about family. 
because you obviously are the child of your parents and your parents carry genetic conditions. And again, right. I'm going back to the congenital and all this <laughs> stuff. So you see, I'm, I'm sort of repeating myself strong, a little bit right? no. <laughs> So if you have a family history of sudden death, your dad died at 28 or, or 33, right. uh, suddenly, then that's a red flag for us. So we want to we want to make sure that you don't have one of those cardiomyopathies like the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy right. or there are other types of cardiomyopathy that are arrhythmogenic. Uh, right. And this is, an ex this is a real medical term saying promoting arrhythmia or abnormalities and sometimes putting people at risk for sudden death. So our job is really to try to see if these people have. And MR is, quite, is actually quite helpful to diagnose cardiomyopathies or abnormal heart muscle that cause arrhythmia, that are arrhythmogenic. So we can use that to look for hypertrophic, for arrhythmogenic, or other types of cardiomyopathy. And in those individuals, we may actually step in and say, you may be at risk of arrhythmia and of dying suddenly on the basketball court, as you've seen in, in, in some headlines. Now, the thing with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is what most of these, because it's, it's relatively common, one in 500 people have this, so not a rare thing. Right. The majority of people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy do not die suddenly. There are, but it, we have to try to tease out those that are at risk. If you've got really bad hypertrophy, if your heart muscle is like very, very thick, like 30 millimeters, that's really, wow. really thick. If your family history is loaded with people who unfortunately died suddenly at 25 or 30, you got a cousin, you got a brother or the father or mother that had sudden death at 30, that's a red flag yeah. too, you know? So we look at all the risk factors and we try to, we try to make an educated guess as to the risk of arrhythmia in those. So determining whether there's organic heart disease underneath and whether your family history is, is bad are two of the things that we will, that we will look for and try to make the best uh, recommendations. Now, obviously doctors hate putting a damper on people's life and, and dreams for either a, you know, a sports career or being competitive because right. because it's in, it's in the human nature to be competitive and, and to do fun stuff like that. So we always feel bad when we recommend that, but we've, you know, we, we feel better, you know, by letting you know the risk. Right? Now there are treatments. You can give medication. That can work, but not always. Depending uh, on the, the issue, right? Like the most issue. definitive treatment for conditions that are at high risk for arrhythmia. Uh -huh. I'm thinking people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or uh, right. arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, those really bad ones with bad family histories and, and very thick muscle. You know, all, everything I've said is an, what we call an ICD, an implantable cardioverter defibrillator. Uh. We don't put that in everyone. Because right. it's a big, you know, you, you basically have this small computer implanted under your skin that analyzes your heartbeat and can deliver a shock to treat if you have like a, a cardiac arrest. So this is not something that we put lightly because right. these batteries have a certain lifespan. They've got to be changed. Right. Every time you change or you implant, there's a small risk of infection. So it's something that we have to weigh really, really carefully Real and, big put, deal. and try to make you know, make the best guess and, 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 and make the best assessment to put it in the right person. Okay. Wow. So this is how we, we sort of approach that. And MR plays a pivotal role in identifying this. The presence of LGE indicating scar fibrosis sets the stage for mistakes to happen in the heart rhythm. Mistakes happen when areas where the electricity travels normally right. suddenly hit a wall or get delayed in an area that, that has fibrosis as seen by LGE. 
And in those areas, especially the ones where it's kind of a gray in between, where you've got a bit of healthy and a bit of dead tissue mixed in, those gray areas are, are the ones that, that, are, that have been associated with, with the worst outcomes. The ones that are like totally dead, there's nothing going through. They kind of, you know, they can be associated as well. You know, we find that when you have LGE, you have more events, sudden death, heart failure, MACE, as we call them, major adverse cardiac events. But the ones that, that where we see a lot of arrhythmia that are often the ones where you've got kind of a, of a gray zone with a mixture of, of healthy and disease. And that really sets the stage for delays in electrical conduction that lead to hiccups or, or, or extra, uh, we call that re-entry. So uh, okay. it's, it means that you've got a late electrical potential that comes back when, when the heart sort of try to relax and, you know, enjoy diastole for a while and gets this thing. So gets this jolt and sometimes that can be a, that can be a bad thing and, that, and, and create a, like a, like a short circuit where you've got this fast, right. uh, fast short, short circuit basically. Well, is that kind of like AFib? Like AFib is a very common arrhythmia. Yeah. And that's the classic case of irregular heartbeat. It typically, it's the most common, it's one of the most common arrhythmias, probably mm -hmm. second to extra beats, like extra systole. Mm -hmm. And it happens, I don't want to say it's a normal aging thing, but it happens more in older individuals. It's basically a disease of the atria, the storage chamber. The commonest cause of atrial disease is ventricular disease. So if you uh, have hypertrophy, hypertrophy yeah. coronary disease, other things, that can cause that. But it typically doesn't happen that often in young people. We see it under special circumstances when there's a lot of stress on the heart. I'll give you some examples. You, let's say you go out and you have a lot of alcohol. Right. The alcohol can have a depressive effect on the cardiac muscle and sometimes trigger these events. So we call this the holiday heart syndrome. Basically, when people have too much booze right. and then go into AFib, that can happen. People who have sleep apnea, also it puts it puts a little bit of stress because you're basically choking while you're sleeping. So I would think that would be a lot of stress. Right? Yeah. So you're choking while you're sleeping, but you don't know it. You can't, you're not breathing and you're, you're snoring and you're trying to, you know, get, right. some, get some air in there and your saturation <laughs> falls. So we see more AFib in, in, in those individuals. We see it more in people who have high blood pressure for the reason I mentioned er earlier is if your heart muscles thick, like our, like our young man, yeah. there, as a result of high blood pressure, the heart doesn't relax properly and, and the atria basically can't empty well. So they often dilate more and, it, and there's stretching that happens in the muscles of the, of the heart at the yeah. atria. Right. There are certain structures that, that are fixed and stuck in, in the lung called the pulmonary veins. And when they're stretching between the atria and those veins that bring back the blood to the heart, and that creates stress and it can cause fibrosis there. And it can cause, again, mistakes where electrical impulses start being delayed. And then you get, again, this kind of arrhythmia from, from the mixture of fibros fibrosis and healthy tissue. And that it's creates AFib. Right, so that's it, why they treat it with like beta blockers and whatnot. You can do that, yeah. There's antiarrhythmics, and yeah. you can do sometimes ablation therapy. Oh yeah, take out the the half dead or the, the 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 mixture of alive and dead tissue. There, it's kind of a, like a cauterization. The most important thing, if you have AFib, is your risk of because the the atria are storage chambers, and if they if they become sort of inefficient, well, the blood stagnates, and it can create clots within the left atrium, and the right atrium, I guess. And these can sometimes detach and cause a stroke. So uh. these people have to be on blood thinners. Whatever you choose to do, if you want to try to, I mean, AFib in itself doesn't kill people. It can 
wear out the heart, but the most serious complication of AFib is actually stroke. So stroke, uh, that, that makes sense. That can occur. So all of these individuals should be on blood thinners, not just an aspirin a day, but they have to be on the more potent ones. Right. There's the, like the ones you see like, on in, TV right. there with the, yeah. the Pixaban or the classic one is warfarin. Warfarin, uh, yeah. AKA rat poison. <laughs> right. <laughs> was actually discovered, this, uh, which, uh, but, uh, I wasn't aware. But, yeah, that's uh, pretty yeah, interesting. That's was, but warfarin Good is enough. very safe. It's not, <laughs> yeah. it's not poison. No, it's not poison. It, just, it was originally <laughs> the history, described right? for that. Nice. Um, but, uh, yes, it's the classic one. Uh, but it, it requires a lot of blood tests and adjustment. The newer, like a Pixaban, Rivaroxaban. These are drugs that are that do not need as much adjustment. They don't need blood tests, oh, but see. they're not good for certain things. Like if you have a metal valve inside the heart, you can't use those because oh, they don't work. Right. Only warfarin and aspirin together work for metal valves, basically. So anyway. Well, you have so, any questions? I got a couple more, but I want to give you two opportunities. Pretty good. Actually, AFib was a big one for me. Okay. Yeah. Very These common. are just general yeah. And it increases with age because as we age, it's a normal part of aging that the heart becomes a little stiffer. Mm. Uh, so most people will, will, will develop. Is it more common in African-Americans? Because I guess we have tendency to have higher blood pressure too, right? So yes, people who have risk factors such as diabetes, high blood pressure, mm -hmm. if you're overweight, overweight brings in a whole bunch of different things oh. that include hypertension, diabetes, right. high cholesterol, also more sleep apnea because your, your, your neck is a little more swollen or fat with the, uh, oh, so yeah. you don't necessarily breathe as, as good. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of simplifying it here, right. but I'm just saying, so that's why it's very important. So, so we, we want to pay special attention to, to African-Americans in terms of getting your blood pressure checked making sure you've got good blood sugar. Don't smoke. Right. Please don't smoke. Yeah. Reggie trying to make it about him. Yeah, you know. All right, we can make it about me. <laughs> and be careful with your alcohol. Give the fans what they want, no, right? Yeah. <laughs> Only two drinks at the Christmas party. Uh, well, one question I did have, again, making it about me. Just a general question. I run pretty often, but sometimes even you know, when I go through the stretches where I don't run at all and I'm really not very active at all, I still have a pretty low resting heartbeat. It's in the mid-50s. And I'm always told when, I'm, when people are testing me, that, oh, you must be an athlete, you must be pretty active, even when I'm not very active at all. So is that, what is that usually indicative of? Is that concerning? Is that I wouldn't genetics? be concerned. Just I mean, the opposite? You, um, people who are typically very active will help, will get that, uh, what we call resting bradycardia, sinus bradycardia. Mm -hmm. And the training effect lasts a certain time. I mean, if you stop complete exercising, if you stop moving at all, the thing with, with, with active people is that there's many ways you can move. I mean, you can, you can walk as part of your work, yeah, obviously training creates this uh, slow heartbeat as a result of, it reflects the training effect. It's related to increased nervous impulses from what we call the vagal nerve. So it's, you get hypervagal response. Mm -hmm. So so a lot of people who are very fit will have what we call resting bradycardia. It lasts for a certain amount of time, especially if you're like, you know, really like, like a competitive athlete. Well, and I guess for the fans watching, I'm, I've got more of the body build builder <laughs> right. body right so but um identify more as a runner more into cardio and stuff so how important is cardio health is and how as far as like oh yeah it's a good question cardiac health i think it's probably one of the most important things to consider if you want if you want a nice retirement you want a nice a nice Active. life as an older adult if you exercise daily and you follow the the recommendations of the American Heart Association, exercising at least 150 minutes a week, right. I think you will have a nice retirement. I mean, 
stuff does it does happen uh, i can't right. say the, the other term but right. um bad things do happen even if you're doing everything right yeah right exercise will not counterbalance bad genes so if you have high cholesterol uh. if you have high blood pressure and you're saying no no i'm, I'm gonna exercise i'm gonna be really thin and and, and he said, i know i've got high blood pressure but i'm exercising so much it, it counterbalances don't. right it doesn't the, rule number one supplements though do supplements supplements I don't think they're of, to my knowledge, of proven value. I think a, a balanced diet. And just look at yourself in the mirror. If you like what you see, then there's probably not much problem. You're probably Ooh, uh, active enough. Can you overdo cardio? You oh, can, for yes. sure, huh? And we find that in people who overdo it, well, there's more injuries. From you're talking heart, about like joint injuries and MSK stuff? Or are you yes, talking about like heart MSK injuries? MSK stuff, but also heart stuff. Okay. Uh, we find that people who overdo it from the heart standpoint are at increased risk of those arrhythmias. That that atrial fib you were talking about, Reggie, right. earlier, it happens more in people who exercise like nonstop. Long-term athletes? Yes. So uh, we see a lot of retired former high-level athletes will have this. Not all of them, but right. I'm just saying, but it does, it's a relative risk. It, it's a multiplier. So it increases your risk of AFib being a really maniac, basically. An exercise maniac increases your risk of arrhythmia probably fivefold. It does reduce your risk of heart attack slightly, but you can't just bet on that. To, right. uh, so you can't, you know, say, yeah, I'm smoking, but I exercise so much, I'm going to be fine. Right. Yeah, I got, I got diabetes, but I exercise so much. It's all it's, good. It's, it's all, all good. Out. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Okay? You're and, making the deal with the devil there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing is that sometimes when people will get, uh, you know, like everybody gets a cold or gets, uh, gets the flu and stuff like that. Oh, no, I still got to go exercise. Probably not a good thing to do. I mean, right. uh, so that's one thing that uh, sometimes when these viruses come along, you should probably take it easy and not push yourself. Just sweat it Give out, your, right? Yeah, no. That's good enough. Give know, your actually. body a rest. Uh, right, because so I think a lot a, of people just are, you know, are so used to hearing just the opposite. Right. Yeah. So that's good to you, hear. You want to give yourself, I mean, uh, we do see the odd case of, of myocarditis where, where people will, will, where the virus will affect their hearts. And there's experimental evidence that suggests that, there's animal experiment that suggests that if you exercise mammals, who have myocarditis, it's not good in the, in the early going. So mm -hmm. you probably should take, you know, maybe a few weeks to maybe a month or a couple of months off. Exercise is good. I don't want people to say, no, can't exercise. I just had yeah. so, But I'm just saying, use your judgment. Moderation. Right? In yeah. moderation. And once you have a stable condition, I think it's a good thing to exercise. Right. Uh, provided your, your doctor tells you, yeah, you're, you're, you're stable, you're stable on your medications, your blood pressure is good. It's probably a good thing. And again, it's always, you got to use your judgment. The best exercise is walking. There's no question. Uh, it's cheap. Not even just, swimming? Oh, but good. you got to have a pool swimming's to swim. You got to have a pool. That's true. Walking yeah. is free. It's higher class. Yeah. 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 Good yeah. pair of shoes, <laughs> you know, good All pair right. of shoes, good pair of socks. Right. And probably the thing you want to be cautious about, and that's, a, that's, a not, that's an emerging risk factor that probably people should be more aware of, is air pollution. Oh. Air pollution, if you, if you exercise in areas where there's, and, you're, and you're, you're jogging there, you know, beside right. the highway, and you've got motors, wall-to-wall know, -wall motors right. pumping carbon monoxide at you, and you're hyperventilating, breathing that stuff, it's probably not that great for you. Counterproductive, so right? So it's kind yeah. of pro counterproductive. Yeah. I don't want to say it's equivalent to smoking, but it's probably not not as not benign. So right. I think you need think to about choose where you're exercising. You want to breathe where there's clean air. 
you know? Ah, that's I, a I really good that. point. Yeah. yeah. I do see a lot of runners early in the morning when we're in the busiest times, like, you know, when it's high traffic and I'm like, if you take a, 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 you know, a map of the U.S. and you look at the incidence of heart disease, it does seem to follow certain patterns, like you know, where there's more obesity and congested you know, populations. But air pollution is a pretty good fit to where, where wow. heart disease is. I've never so, heard that connection. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. I, I think you know, obviously the lawmakers have to have, have to start paying attention to that, and I think right. that, that you know we have to be smart as 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 a society to try to see what's yeah to minimize what's that. good for us. Yeah. So we're, we oftentimes hear that heart disease is one of the leading causes of death. And I imagine that's kind of all-encompassing. It talks about an umbrella that includes some of the stuff that you mentioned earlier, right? All right. Um, I mean, is, that, is yeah. that pretty much what's going on there when we hear yeah, that? Yeah, still no. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we pretty much covered the, yeah, the gist thank of it. You, Dr. Thanks Mark for coming I, again. Right? I guess for my dad's sake, because I hear this all the time, I do want have one last question. Is eggs good or bad for you? <laughs> <laughs> I think everything in moderation is 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 fine. I mean, you if you down? have if you have <laughs> if you have very very high cholesterol, I mean there are certain things that are higher in 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 cholesterol, but I think that if you suffer from from terribly high cholesterol and you need you need to be on three different drugs to lower your cholesterol, I think you you might be want to be, you might want to be mindful about that. Right. Cholesterol is not all bad. Cholesterol is a compound that, that, that makes cell membranes. It's useful. If God put it there, then it's, right. there's, there's some use for it. So we use cholesterol to make cell membranes and to make hormones and things like that. So it does have its use. The thing is, in itself, it's not just that. It's all the rest that you do. So if, you're, if you don't move, if you have high sugar, diabetes, high blood pressure, you're not taking your pills, you're not doing your, your prevention, it's not just one thing that does it. Right. Okay? Unless you've got like, a horrible family history of these people born with genetic abnormalities of their of their cholesterol who start having heart attacks when they're like eight years old or you know, oh, uh, you right. know really and those you know obviously rare those cases. are but those are those are fairly rare you know the the, the familial hypercholesterolemia the, 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 right. the, the, that, that's a rare problem I mean most individuals will have most people who get coronary disease will have cholesterols that are mildly or you know only mildly elevated so. It's, cool. It's, uh, it's it's all the rest that we do, right. and perhaps uh, some of those risk factors I, sp I talked about: smoking, air pollution, right. diabetes, overweight, hypertension, and stress probably is right. is Get a good night's sleep. Right. Cool. Well, thank and you, then, Dr. Mark. Hi. You've been pleasure. great. Yeah. Pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for coming. That Enjoy is awesome. Appreciate it. it. I know you're a busy man, so we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. And thank guys. you for watching. Yes. And thank you for those who subscribe. If you haven't yet subscribed, we need subscribers. That's a great way to show support for us. Yeah. We are a building good content uh, podcast here. And so we help us build. Keep it going. Um, hit like, hit subscribe, keep watching, tell your friends about us. And thank you again. We'll leave it on that. Zone 3 Podcast. We are out. The information and comments provided in the Zone 3 podcast and website are not intended to be technical or medical recommendations or advice for individuals or patients. The information and comments provided under the auspices of Zone 3 podcasts and their guests are of a general nature and should not be considered specific to any individual or patient. Whether or not a specific patient is referenced by the physician, technologist, individual, group, 
or other entities seeking information. Zone 3 Podcast may provide links or references to websites. Such links are provided as a convenience to our listeners seeking more information on topics. These websites are not affiliated with Zone 3 Podcast, nor do they endorse or manage content discussions unless otherwise stated during recording.